This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. American history has become a blistering controversy over the past several years. A Tennessee group of mothers says it places too much emphasis on the dark side, the narrow and slanted obsession on historical mistakes reveals a heavily biased agenda, one that makes children hate their country. But in North Carolina, new standards say that schools should put more emphasis on the deprivations of disadvantaged groups in our society, whether they're black, immigrants, women, or whatever. And the schools must teach about discrimination. So what's the right way to approach American history? Should schools celebrate the past? Should it praise the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, the struggle for civil rights by Martin Luther King, or should it focus on slavery, segregation, expulsion of Native Americans from their land, and the denial of the vote to women until 1920? So this is an incredibly controversial issue in American politics today, and fortunately, I have with me Paul Carice, the founding director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, to discuss this topic. He is a professor at the school now and author of an essay entitled Civic Preparation of American Youth, Reflective Patriotism and Our Constitutional Democracy. So, Paul, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Paul, in your essay, you say that U.S. history and, and civics education should be taught from the perspective of reflective patriotism. So what do you mean by reflective patriotism? It's a term that Alexis de Tocqueville coined, as far as I know, in Democracy in America, the first volume published in 1835. And he was contrasting the New World patriotism he was seeing when he visited in the early 1830s in contrast to the old world patriotism. He was a minor uh, French nobleman, French aristocrat. The old world patriotism was subjects or citizens with sentimental foundations for loving country. Uh, history, mythic, tradition, but the emphasis Tocqueville said was sentiment and not reason. In the new world, love of country, which is how he defines public spirit or patriotism, is partly sentimental, but very substantially rational. The Americans have a reflective, it could also be translated considered patriotism because their former politics is grounded in ideas of rights, of a government that should protect and serve rights and citizens. And therefore the Americans always want to argue about whether or not the government is in fact serving their rights. They want to argue about the meaning of the rights and the meaning of America. And as he develops later in, in the whole two volumes of Democracy in America, the Americans are interested in their self-interest. <laughs> and he says they blend patriotic love for America with a sense that if they commit to America, this will be to their, their particular interest. It will benefit themselves, their friends, their families, if they are active citizens, if they serve the civic community, state or, or uh, federal or local. Uh, and so the term he uses later in Democracy in America is enlightened self-interest. 
So this is the new kind of patriotism that the Americans have, and he likes it and he encourages it. He does later in the volume have some more complicated views about how to sustain patriotism in this blend of rational self-interest and and sentiment love of country. So, but but maybe things have changed, and the Republican Party in particular has descended into just the old-fashioned old patriotism of just love of country. Forget about uh, you know the 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 problems and the challenges, and just just sort of celebrate. Uh, yeah, America first. We hear America first from uh, Donald Trump these days. So. It, have we degenerated? Has the especially the the conservative perspective on American uh, civic education or American history has it degenerated into to what De Tocqueville sort of you know may may have thought might be appropriate for France or Britain or but certainly could it be appropriate for Germany too? I mean, so so what are the you know is that a, is that a problem? I do think he would be worried about uh, Donald Trump, but also Bernie Sanders' uh, demagoguery. He was very worried about Andrew Jackson. And I think the lesson we can draw from Tocqueville now is that, as he discusses in Democracy in America, we have a Republican constitutional form of government, federal constitution, but also the state constitutions, 24 or so at the time that he was writing. They're Republican constitutions, and he highly praises the American founders, most of the state constitutions, for tempering or moderating what he calls the democratic or egalitarian spirit. So he is admiring the American experiment, but also warning about tendencies within it. Andrew Jackson, democratic egalitarianism, demagoguery, passion, that's certainly a tendency um, he's worried about. He doesn't see the problem I think we face today of a polarization between those who are overwhelmingly critical of America, on the one hand, as you recounted, um, the six, let's call it the 1619 Project spirit, right? And, and any kind of critical studies, critical race theory. Polarization between that and the resurgence of a kind of America first, America love it or leave it, a, a phrase of, certainly from the Vietnam War era. Uh, so that he doesn't see that, but he gives us the the analysis and the grasp of fundamental principles that I think can help us to understand. It's why I thought his choice of the term reflective or considered patriotism would be particularly helpful now. So to put it in context, most of higher education and most of K-12 education is dominated by scholars and teachers of the humanities subjects and the social science subjects, and then in K-12, history, social studies, who are of the left and, and even of the farther left. It's overwhelmingly dominated by that. And so I was being provocative by suggesting in the 21st century, any useful sound effort to frame a civic education as part or related to history education, social studies education, needs to focus on patriotism. Your essay uh, on reflective patriotism appears in a volume published by the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science on civic education, to which a lot of contributions are made. 
But as I looked through the various essays, I could not find much support for your position. They yes. all seem to be taking a somewhat more, well, one of two positions, either you should just teach kids how to send letters to congressmen in order to get things fixed, or else it, the essays were on, uh, you know, what's wrong with America or whatever. We need to be, we need to be uh, changing our society. So taking a, what I would call a, a not a definitely not a reflective patriotism kind of approach. Did you feel that way about the collection? Yes, it's the experience of any sort of intellectual conservatives in higher education and in the K-12 sector right now. You're definitely the minority point of view. I'm grateful that they invited me to participate. And we can talk more about this. The reason I was invited to contribute to the annals special volume is that I was also invited as a minority conservative voice in a national study about K-12 public schools and history and civic education in public schools. So I, I knew I was a minority uh, voice, but glad to counter each failing views that civics should be about engagement rather than about civic knowledge. And I would also say civic virtues, that we should be mostly critical toward America rather than in my view, grateful for America on the basis of civic knowledge and civic virtues. But it includes criticism of America because that's been the American experience from 1776 onward. We debate, we discuss, we criticize, we, we argue about where we need to improve and, and reform. Uh, and then the third countering minority view that I have is that democracy is always the word. So it fits with a somewhat Jacksonian, but I would trace it more to John Dewey, right? Woodrow Wilson and John Dewey, that we are a democracy, we're always evolving, there are no permanent meanings. And so you should teach in the schools, and if you teach at civics at all in higher education, it should be about activism and engagement and complaint and criticism and demand for reform, rather than understanding we are a constitutional republic with democratic elements, and that democracy's history in the past 3,000 years has mostly been self-destructive. And so we, we should be tempered, have democratic elements to a more moderate, complicated constitutional republic. So yes, so would you sort of prefer the term constitutional democracy rather than democracy? Yes, that was actually one of my contributions as the co-author, co-lead on, on this national study, educating for American democracy. I always insisted that there be an adjective in front of the word democracy. So it's the predominant term in the K-12 ecosystem, in the higher education ecosystem, and uh, it's not accurate in and of itself. You know, educating for democracy, where? On Mars, you know, uh, but also uh, democracy is not our form of government. It's at least American democracy, so that lets you smuggle in constitutional, that we're a constitutional democratic republic, you know, something, something like that. So Benjamin Franklin said, it's a republic if you can keep it. Yes. So, uh, so is it still a republic or has it, or are we now verging into something that is a form of democracy that's no longer constitutional? I, I think our, our theory and our practice has devolved in this way, and I would say degenerated in this way. And we are paying the price, whether scholars can look at the price and say, gee, what are the causes? What, what might we do differently? That's another 
question. But the loss of confidence in the past several decades in all, all American institutions, the, the American military is the only institution that's, uh, you know, near 50% or being above water. Even higher education, by the way, is underwater now in, in American confidence. So, I mean, one reason of that is that we stopped teaching civics in K-12 schools, and we've mostly stopped teaching it in higher education. But that too fits with this sort of democratic, small d democratic spirit, that you, you don't need to study civic knowledge. You don't need to develop civic virtues, such as reflective patriotism, civil disagreement, civic duties, uh, civic friendship across political philosophical views. You don't need to do that. You just need to go out and do stuff, right? So we, we have various ills right now. I've already mentioned demagoguery taking over both political parties to the extent that the political parties don't really exist right now. They just have actors, performers, demagogues dominating them in constant electioneering. So whether we could trace back our ills to some of these, I think, fundamental errors that we are republic, constitutional republic, that requires civic knowledge of citizens, that requires civic virtues of citizens. And uh, that's, that's the game that I'm trying to be engaged in to make these minority points. Well, it, you're courageous to walk into a room where you're uh, a voice of one or, or very few. Uh, so Education Next uh, polled American parents on uh, what they wanted taught in their schools or what they thought was being taught in in the their local school. And they, the question said, is too much emphasis being placed on slavery and segregation or too little emphasis being placed, or is it about right? And what I found interesting was that the majority of American parents, and these were parents talking about their own schools, they thought, the majority thought it was about right, what was being done, but 20% thought it was too much and 20% thought it was too little. So it was almost like the schools had gotten it right if they were trying to please parents. So then I thought, well, that's got to be because different schools are teaching different things. So do we have a common, anything close to a common curriculum when it comes to history and civics education, or is it varying across our landscape? It is varying across the landscape. As far as I know, I learned a great deal in co-authoring this national study. The great strength of the American educational system has always been a principle and effect of federalism and, and pluralism, a, a mixture of private institutions, then, then public institutions develop. Um, the, the challenge, of course, of federalism is to think that we are a republic, one republic, as well as now 50 member uh, republics, and that's certainly difficult in the educational sphere. What we wrote in that Education for American Democracy study was what we called a roadmap or guidelines. We, On the principle of federalism, we decided we should not try to write a national curriculum. But on the other hand, we agreed that the Federal Department of Education should fund that study, which they, they did, the National Endowment for the Humanities and, and the U.S. Department of Education funded the study, because there is a common concern of one republic having some common American history and civic education in public schools. I mean, George Washington wanted a national university and other leading founders agreed with him that there ought to be a kind of graduate level civic education for the new American republic, as well as, of course, education being predominantly the responsibility of the state. So it, it, it is a challenge that there's such 
a range of approaches to civics and history education across the 50 states and, and territories and the quality of it. We thought we were doing a service by saying, here are some consensus center left to center right guidelines. You in the 50 states and local education authorities, you, you'll have to figure out um, precisely how to use this roadmap to get precisely where you want to go. But we, we think these are the parameters and the general guidelines that you should consult. Well, you know, the Civil War is an example of, uh, uh, you know, I don't think we've ever quite closed that gap that was uh, created by that uh, terrible conflict. Uh, and, you know, the North always uh, called it uh, the the, the uh, war, the I've forgotten exactly, the rebellion. Yes. Uh, and the Southerners called it the War of Northern Aggression. And yes. I think Southern schools teach a different history of the Civil War than Northern schools do. When I hear a Southerner speak about the Civil War, I think they're, well, the battlefields have different names. There's just so much of a different understanding of what happened during that period of time that I feel is probably still being expressed. Is there a right history of the Civil War? Or, or can there be both? One of the ideas we developed in the EAD study, and we had a very distinguished historian as one of the seven co-authors, uh, your your Harvard colleague, uh, Jane Kamensky, actually your former Harvard colleague, she's just stepped down to be, uh, she's left her Harvard position to become the new president of Monticello, of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which I think is greatly to her credit. She, as we are approaching America at 250, 1776 to 2026, she thought the capstone of her career could be to help with broader civic education efforts through this through the Jefferson Foundation. But Jane and the rest of us agreed that in teaching history and in teaching civics, we should prepare for citizenship by teaching about the fact of disagreement and how to argue and reason and assess disagreements in in reasonable civil ways so is there one more correct history of the civil war i think generally yes uh, but are there competing histories of the civil war that's what american history and historiography is probably always has been so you know it, the k-12 study we did educating for american democracy worked by grade bands so in k through two how deep can you get into the fact that there are disagreements about the meaning of the Constitution and the meaning of the Declaration and the meaning of the Civil War Amendments and et cetera, et cetera? Uh, how deeply can you get into differences of, you know, what are the major points in our history and what do they mean? You can't, but you can lay some foundations in K through two, and then you move on to three through five. And it's really in six through eight and nine through 12 that you can move toward what we refer to as something of a liberal arts or a Socratic spirit to say there there is a difference between fact and and fraud fact and and delusion but there are legitimate disagreements about facts and there are legitimate disagreements about interpretations of facts and you can reasonably prepare young americans for being full active citizens by having them aware of this um, so it's a complicated package. I, I think reflective patriotism fits in there because you you are in the public schools doing your civic duty if you teach young people to be grateful for America, to love America. And that includes the freedom to argue and to disagree. And because we're going to disagree, teach them how to disagree in more reasonable civil ways. Well, I like your distinction there between uh, 
you know, factually correct, but differences in emphasis and interpretation as distinct from just wrongheaded or delusionary uh, interpretations of American history. So let me ask you about that 1619 project. Where does that fit on that spectrum? Is it sheer delusion or is there something to that story? Should that be part of what's taught in our uh, civics education or is that really to be eschewed? The two poles right now are the 1619 Project and then the Trump administration's 1776 Commission and curricular efforts based on each are, are underway. I'm a, an intellectual constitutional conservative. My views are closer to the 1776 Commission, but I don't think they're doing a very good service by responding so strongly, in a way, taking the bait of the 1619 Project. Now, to be fair to the 1776 Commission, just as you said about me, they are the minority view in the K-12 public schooling space and the minority view in higher education. And so they feel justified by so strongly reacting to the 1619 Project. I think there's more accuracy and, and uh, reality-based thinking in the 1776 Commission than in the 1619 report and the Pulitzer Prize, uh, sorry, the, the Pulitzer uh, educational curriculum efforts. But I think there's a real problem with the 1776 Commission view that does not account adequately for the problems America faced in contradicting its own first founding principles and, and the progress it has made in forthrightly addressing those contradictions or failings and, and moving forward. So I think they, they don't have enough of a reflective patriotism, I think in reaction to the denigration of America, even hatred of America in the 1619 Project, 1776 Commission report goes a little too far. Um, and so I, the reflective patriotism concept, I think fits in the middle ground. The 1619 Project, I think, stands or falls on its own written words. They've had to revise it. They had to admit that key phrases used in the, the launch of the project are simply fact, factually in, inaccurate and, and not uh, plausible. Uh, Center-left historians, far more expert than I am, have documented that. So it's really, a, and, and even in the backpedaling, Nicole Hannah-Jones has said this was political history. This was a political project. This was political journalism. Why the well, Pulitzer Center... It struck me that it was a very Marxist interpretation when yes. I threw it. I said, you know, I, really, I think this would fit very much with what Marx would have said. And uh, and so what I found... Well, it has one thing about it. It has Marx with a more of an emphasis on uh, ethnicity or slavery or... Uh, uh, the, the blacks and uh, are chosen as the uh, the sort of the proletariat. They become the proletariat in the sixteen nineteen project. But other than that, is mainly a, a Marxist analysis. Why is this being accepted so widely by so many elements in our societies? Is it just because the New York Times blessed it, or is there more to it than that? I think you're right that it is a critical studies approach in the sixteen nineteen project and Marxist in some ways. I would say it's part of the downward spiral of, of 50 years or more of not focusing on civics and history in an appropriate way in public schools, certainly K through 12, and then in higher education as well. So it, it's a, you know, it's a chicken and egg problem with that kind of uh, down, downward spiral. 
that the fact that there's such widespread civic ignorance and a, a lack of a reflective patriotism makes a broader and broader public susceptible to the kind of ideology in the 1619 project. So in the Educating for American Democracy study, we never mentioned the 1619 project. We also don't mention the 1776 uh, commission. We do mention uh, Jill Lepore's history and we mention uh, uh, Wilfred McClay, Bill McClay's American history, right? A center left and a center right history, both even Jill Lepore's history is patriotic in its own way about America as better kinds of, of serious scholarship disagreeing with each other. But we decided not to mention these, these very far reactionary um, polls. Um, I do think the challenge now is to, in a reasonable way, uh, put the onus on the 1619 Project, the Pulitzer Center, any, any educational voices like this, to, to say that this is deficit spending of the civic capital of the American Republican order. You're a free rider if you keep doing this. We know from study and survey after study and survey that the younger generation, 20 and under, 25 and under, is not patriotic about America. They are incredibly civically ignorant about America. They do not think it's important to live in a democracy. The, the questions and the data go on and on. So to keep pushing this anti-American narrative is recklessly endangering the very liberty and the very freedom and the very prosperity that the 1619 Project authors have, the New York Times has, the Pulitzer Center has, all of that. So I think we need to keep saying that there, at this point, it's, it's recklessly irresponsible. Well, the issue has sort of uh, climbed into the presidential campaign. Nikki Haley uh, said something in New Hampshire when she was asked a question about uh, what were the causes of the Civil War. And, and she said, basically, it was uh, how government was going to run the freedom and what people could and couldn't do. We need to make sure we do all things so that individuals have the liberty so that they can have freedom of speech freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way. So th that, that was, you know, strenuously criticized. I, I, I looked at what the press reaction was, and it was uh, across the landscape. Every major media outlet called this uh, really stupid and uh, showed that she didn't know anything about American history. And the cause of the Civil War was slavery. So... How do you how do you interpret this controversy? Uh, speaking as an amateur, not a historian, um, it is a curious fact right now that there is a broader American public that is interested in consuming works of history, uh, not non-scholarly uh, biographies and histories and and documentaries and podcasts and other sources, and yet. As I was mentioning, you know, the under 20, under 25, under 30 generation is so woefully ignorant about American history. And then there are obviously plenty of people in public life who are uh, woefully ignorant. So those of us who are in education, in K-12, in higher education, can only do what we can do. I, I'm in a public university. Before that, I taught at another kind of public university, the, the U.S. Air Force Academy. And certainly the publicly funded and publicly governed K-12 schools and the publicly funded universities must do a better job in restoring the original civic public mission 
of these institutions. And if there is more time and attention paid to history and history scholarship, then I think we can turn the corner and call to account the history profession itself. History departments all over the country in public and private universities are doing away with their positions, their tenure positions and other faculty lines in political history, in military history, in American history, right? Those, those fields are dying out. In, the, in my field, political science, uh, American constitutional thought, American political thought is dying out in the major departments and in the PhD fields. Even political philosophy taught in a more historical way from Plato to NATO, let's say, right? That's dying out. So if, if some of us can say, this is a suicidal path for the American Democratic Republic, if certain disciplines and, and higher education and leaders in K-12 schools do not teach civics and history in a responsible way. This is suicidal. I think we can have some effect to turn a spotlight on these disciplines, which I think are being really self, history and political science, I'll pick on, being particularly kind of self-serving and, and, and selfish and being free riders in, in what they've done. And then their, their effect in turn on K-12 schools. So the hopeful interpretation of what has been happening in recent times is that the controversy itself will stimulate closer attention to our past, a better understanding of our past, and perhaps lead to a um, approach that is more reflective and still patriotic. Is that possible? I do think it's possible, but I like the way you phrase that. The, the challenge of bringing attention in terms of controversy to these questions is that it can have a, a boomerang effect you don't want. That, that is happening. I hear it anecdotally in their writings about it. That's happening in many public schools where the principal, the director of social studies and civics, the teachers in the classrooms don't want to say anything controversial. They don't want to do anything controversial. They don't want to be caught in the crossfire of this culture war between the 1619 Project view and the 1776 Commission view. And so it makes the situation worse. That's why I agreed as a conservative and the only one in, in the co-author role of that study uh, to say a national consensus effort could try to calm the waters a bit bring more focus on the reasonable disagreements rather than the passions and give some top cover to states and to local education authorities and to teachers in the classroom with these guidelines to give them some credibility. If a, a parent or a board of uh, education member or someone else questions, why are you teaching this history topic in this way? Why are you teaching this civics topic in this way? And say, well, this is a national study and here are the scholars that were involved in it. So, that's what, what the, and there were other very distinguished conservatives who agreed to support that study on various task force. I mean, you, you know some of them quite well uh, Chester Finn, Checker Finn, uh, Alan Gelzo, now great Civil War historian, now at, at uh, Princeton, David Bob, the president of the Bill of Rights Institute, my friend and mentor, Jim Stoner at Louisiana State University. So there were several of us as conservatives thought the controversy can be so loud and so passionate as to be counterproductive and make a bad situation worse. Civics and history are already being neglected in public schools. Uh, and, and, and we thought this attempt at a middle ground effort would improve the situation.
Well, thank you for those thoughtful and reflective comments. Uh, and thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me and best wishes with your work. I've been speaking with Paul Carice. He's the founding director of the School in Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, where he is still a professor. And he's the author of an essay on civics education just published in the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.